always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie? Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. An important truth here learned on Cinephile. I'm trying to educate, but instead you all are educating me. Never, ever underestimate your audience. We did the first ever Cinephile trivia last time on the podcast because we have uh, an abundance of shirts. We went from being <laughs> careful like a wedding, very measured. Now I, now I have like an overflow. I'm like, you know, we can just keep doing these because I, I feel like I've taken care of those I need to take care of. Now I have over 100 shirts just sitting at my desk. So let's get going. So more trivia. Uh, but to bring you back, Stanzik, I thought, put together a very elaborate, in-depth quiz. And he said over under three and a half that will get it right. And I said under. And in fact, I predicted we'd be doing the exact same questions this time. Instead, we had 10 correct answers within 20 hours, and answers were still coming correctly afterwards. Overall, we had about 15 to 20 correct answers. So egg on my face, Stanza. I tried telling you, man. Don't underestimate. Uh, I love the fact that you've, you've now dialed up a second quiz, which we'll get to momentarily. Uh, as far as reviews coming up, Hacksaw Ridge, a new Mel Gibson film, Under the Flood, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's climate change documentary, and the documentary De Palma, which I love, and I'm going to talk a ton about that. Also, Scorsese's stories, uh, William had uh, tweeted me, William Rankin, I believe it is, who's an actor in his own right, is uh, my new favorite follow on Twitter. He's always sending me stuff about Marty, and he goes, hey, how great is this film, which he reminded me of? It's a 45-minute short film that Scorsese did. I went back and watched it again. That's going to be the Scorsese story later on. And our special guest today, Matt Atchity of Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes is the best film website out there. I'm sure if you're a cinephile, you go there all the time, go there daily like I do. Matt is going to join us to talk about the origins of Rotten Tomatoes and also some big-time films that he's looking forward to coming out this year really fascinating conversation coming up with him but first and foremost let's do the oh actor showcase as well tom cruise jack reacher 2 is in theaters inexplicably so we're going to rank the top five films of tom cruise's career plus some three words in there as well but quiz number two stands dial it up okay you doubted the audience last time <laughs> i don't know why this one's tougher oh i gotta be honest with you this one is is much more difficult i feel like a cinephile expert now not on movies, just on this podcast and things that have been said on it. How much time did it take you to put together the previous quiz, and how much time did it take you to put this one together? I'd say the last one, 45 minutes, 45 minutes this one about – let, let me frame it this way. Sure. I spent probably five times the amount of time working on this quiz than I did <laughs> producing Mike and Mike this morning. Now, this is an important clarification. Like for those who hear the name Stanzik all the time, they go, who is he? He is the producer of Mike and Mike. That's the number one sports radio show in the country, and it's really the biggest one at this company. In addition to that, he is doing Cinephile pro bono, yet he does an immeasurable more amount of work for Cinephile than Mike and Mike. Accurately stated, yes. <laughs> yes. So this quiz... <laughs> People, I don't know how you got the last one right so quickly. And we got to talk about how you give the winners to me. Because mm. I feel like if you're just like replying to them saying, hey, winner number one, people could easily just look at your replies on Twitter and say, oh, oh okay. those are the right answers. Good we'll, point. we'll talk off air. Okay, fair. So Thank let's you. get to the quiz. We're wasting too much time as it is. Let's do it. Question number one, and it is the most difficult question I could come up with. <sighs> I don't think you would even have gotten this one correct. No way. On the podcast to date, you have given four out of four Maple Leafs to six films. 
Two of them are documentaries, so we are not counting them. One First of them was, was, one was made in America, and the other one was Hitchcock Truffaut. Hitchcock Truffaut, fantastic! You should we're, you should go see. We're throwing those out. Okay, fair. So enough. four films that you could see in theaters. They're all released this year, 2016. Four films that you've given four stars to. What are the four films? Good luck. Question two: What is the lowest rated film in the short history of cinephile? Yeah, that you was, gave it one star. One Maple You've Leaf. You've given one and a half. Oh, one Maple Leaf. Excuse me. Branding. I'm American. You're Canadian. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, good luck in the election. <laughs> <laughs> I can't vote anyway. Now, let's just move right on. Question number three. Which movie did Adnan pay $5.23 <laughs> to see in Iowa? That one was hilarious because I'm like, people, cause people are going to try to cheat. They'll go, wait, when did he go to Iowa? I don't know. Why what was the he hell? in Iowa? Right. Wait a minute. What's going on? Iowa. Question four. The word, or I guess name, Oprah, was used to describe which actor or actress during a rendition of three words. <sighs> Again, you know that you got, one? Yo, I remembered well, it right away. Answers. I gave you the answers. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But you got to dig deep on that one, too. Okay. Question five. Which ESPN personality did a Hollywood writer producer write into a prospective script? That one I think people can get, but again, you have to be listening to every episode. Okay. Next question. Which actor took method acting? Way too far with his co-star in an Oscar winner. Yeah, see, this one I think is going to be really challenging because the one you gave him, like, yeah, that is true. But I think people are going to think of other examples that I may have given. Well, the key there is Oscar winner. Okay, because you've given other examples of method, of method acting going too far, right? But they weren't in Best Picture winners. Gotcha. Okay, that's you know important qualifiers. We're all qualifiers. All right. Next question, and you know, this one's been done a bunch. Which, what is the NF- CFL? Nickname that has been referenced at least three times on Cinephile. CFL, Canadian Football League, for those uninformed. You or a guest has referenced it. I think every time you talk to a Canadian, it comes up. And quite frankly, I'm sick of it. So yeah, you sure hate the it. Too, and they know the reference by now. Right. I'm done with it. Every time you hate it. Like, I just it's immediately like, see oh, you. Right I think here. I've tried to edit it out of all the interviews, but somehow it stays in. Uh, and actually, that is the last question. I'm sorry. We need uh, last names only. Or yeah, else it will not fit. That's the other thing. How is this all going to fit? So in a tweet, at Adnan ESPN, right. then all of the answers, you can use commas and only use the last names of the people. A lot of the answers are films, but of the people, only use the last names. Okay. Well, I love the fact that it's more difficult because that's the greatest lesson we learned was the fact that 10 answers within, within 20 hours. I'm like, come on, what's going on here? So this is now a truly elaborate quiz. If you're a dedicated cinephile fan, good luck. Movies we go. Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> Our boy Mel Gibson certainly has had a tough time of it the last decade or so. You know all about the backstory, uh, what Mel has been through, and I certainly understand. I have friends who are Jews who are saying, I'm not going to support Hacksaw Ridge. I'm not going to go see his new movie because the comments he's made in the past. I totally understand that and support you in that. Uh, but the film is getting really good reviews, 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. So I said, let me just go check it out. Mel Gibson as director. And... It's a war film, which isn't a genre I'm particularly eager to see, only because the war films I've seen, they think they're so good, like Platoon, Glory, Apocalypse Now, even Hurt Locker, which I didn't think should have won Best Picture. I get why Catherine Bigelow did a good job with it. But to me, it's just a well-worn genre. I'm like, what more can you say that is new about war? And the first half hour of this movie is very superfluous. I I mean, the biggest word you can think about Hacksaw Ridge right out of the gate, especially the first 30, 40 minutes, is corny with a capital C. Like, there's a, a scene with Andrew Garfield, who plays the main character, Doss, 
um, who is raised as a devout Christian. He's somebody who, whose roots of pacifism are given to him very early, but it's very on the nose. Like, it's abusive father. He doesn't believe in striking back. Boom. That's where his pacifism is born. Like, there's no subtlety in the first three minutes. But go ahead. Got it. Here's a Bible. Here's what he believes. You know, thou shalt not kill. You know, turn the other cheek, et cetera, et cetera. So the, you get all these elements right away. There's a scene where you, you know, love interest. It's actually embarrassing. Like, she, she takes his blood. The next day he comes back. And it, there's a bit of Forrest Gump in there, especially with this voice now, corny it is. And he's literally like, I'm here to give my blood back because ever since you took my blood, I can't function. So I'm like, this is so lame right now. Like, I was literally like, this is the corniest romantic scene I've ever seen. <laughs> and it's also the kind of movie where as insults come, they call each other Chowderhead, which has got to be the corniest thing ever in a long time. Vince Vaughn plays the sergeant. And this is when the movie actually takes off, shockingly, because I thought True Detective Season 2 was a catastrophe, and I thought Vince Vaughn was as abysmal as he's ever been in a movie. Now, I love him in Swingers. I love him in a lot of those comedies. I think he's a really funny guy, particularly when he's with John Favreau. And, you know, maybe he's actually has some talents as a dramatic actor, but he certainly didn't show True Detective Season 2. He was just completely unconvincing as this tough guy gangster. Having said that, Hacksaw Ridge, as soon as he shows up in the movie, once Doss enlists in the military, and Vince Vaughn is kind of taken off on R. Lee Ermey, the famous drill sergeant, full metal jacket. He's coming in, no holds barred, screaming at the guys. He's actually very good in the movie. Once he comes in, he lifts up the film, and he, okay, now it's a familiar setting. Here we are at boot camp, left, right, left, right, and he's getting everybody's faces and really going. And, and like I said, he actually conveys the appropriate amount of intensity uh, and ferocity that you expect back to this drill sergeant who's trying to get everybody going, even if he does use a term like chowderhead. But Doss, and this is where the movie starts to take off, because you really put yourself in this guy's shoes, because the way that Vince Vaughn and the other members now look at him is this. Okay, we're in boot camp together, war is hell, we're all united, yet this guy's saying, I don't carry a gun. Wait, what? It's like, no, no, I don't, I don't carry a gun, I'm, I'm a devout Christian, I believe in pacifism, I'm not going to wear a gun. Like, no, no, dude, we're all in the same camp here, you're going to learn how to shoot a gun. Whether or not you want to actually use the gun is one thing, like because he's, he's there as a medic. He's like, I'm here as a doctor to help. But you better learn how to at least use a gun so if necessary, you can use it. And Doss is saying, no, there's no way. I, I And they go, so you're a conscientious objector? He's like, no, I'm here. I volunteered for the war effort. I'm just not going to use a gun, like no matter what, nothing. And the film shows you the, the levels to which these guys go. Like just imagine being in a barracks with this guy and you say, well, I can't trust you if you're not going to have my back, if you're not going to use a gun to kill the enemy. And and you see the challenges he has, and that's where Gibson, and he certainly has this kinship, knowing a little bit about him and his life, that the whole idea of resolute faith in adversity and, and perseverance and sticking to one's morals and ideals, and that's where the film works most successfully. They then get to the point of Hacksaw Ridge, and Gibson is clearly cribbing from Steven Spielberg and the the amazing opening of Saving Private Ryan, but whatever inspiration he's drawing from it doesn't matter because he does a sensational job with it. The, the action scenes and the war scenes in Hacksaw Ridge are worth the price of admission alone. I mean, he really nails that the verisimilitude of war and and just the fact that these guys are it's an absolute hell. And it's done in a very kinetic style and very visceral movements. And Doss is, is you know, the way he's referred to, as I said, is a conscientious objector. But really, he's the guy here to save everybody. And he's there as the medic, and he's trying to heal wounds and carry guys up. And, and what can be more heroic than somebody who is selfless rather than self-serving? And that's exactly what Doss is. He's, I'm only here to help people. And there's a couple scenes they say, you know what, just give the guy morphine. He's going to die anyways. He's like, no, no, I, I can save him. I can do it. And like I said, 
at times it's it's corny and it's on the nose, but at the same time, it is thrilling and it is impactful and it is moving and it is heroic and it is what all great war films should be. So I'm giving Hacksaw Ridge three Maple Leafs based on a true story. You can learn more about Doss. And in fact, the other movie shows you a little bit about him. But I was surprised I never really heard about the story. This guy saved 75 people uh, in the war as a medic and never once carried a gun, never once shot a gun. I think it did all right at the box office. Not great. I mean, Mel's obviously hoping to get some, some Oscar buzz here. But like I said, there's still backlash with the way his name is viewed in Hollywood. But Garfield did a convincing job, even if the central character does have a little Forrest Gump in him. Go ahead, Stanzik. What do you think about the notion of Mel Gibson doing this film as some sense of atonement for his storied past? And he has this main character who doesn't fire back and is a pacifist mm. during all this war. Well, that's kind of interesting. I didn't draw that parallel. I definitely thought that, listen, like you said, he's looking for atonement. He knows he's trying to redeem himself. And I figured he'd find redemption in a very, you know, faithful, resolute character. Obviously, Mel's a devout Christian. This guy's a devout Christian. War is something that all Americans can gra- you know, gravitate to, the whole idea of patriotism and self-serving. But, yeah, I didn't really draw that parallel of like, hey, you guys are all going to come at me, but I'm not going to come back at you. While you're watching it, can you forget that Mel Gibson is the the director, or yes. is that something that's in the back of your mind as you're watching it? No, I think you can forget. I think if you make the commitment to actually buy the ticket and go see the movie, then you're just parking whatever you feel about him personally at the door. You are neither exonerating whatever his comments have been, whatever his beliefs may be, and you're saying, listen, I just want to go see the film. Whatever he is as a person, I don't endorse him, but I, I would like to see the film. Uh, now, I get the fact some would say, well, if you're endorsing the film, you're endorsing him as a human being, but I don't draw that uh, cor- uh, cor- correlation. That's like Ted Nugent. Like, I have a friend who likes Ted Nugent, and I said, do you realize what Ted Nugent speaks for and stands for? He goes, no, I got it. Like, yeah, he's nuts. I'm not – I just like Strangled. Okay, I just like the song. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I think some can do that. Although, it's funny. Like, I admire those who don't. De Niro was recently at a, a political fundraiser, and Schwarzenegger was there. And somebody tried to get a picture, and De Niro looked at Schwarzenegger and goes, wait, you're supporting Trump, aren't you? And Schwarzenegger said, uh, no, I've, uh, I've said publicly I'm not supporting Trump, but I don't know who I'm voting for. And De Niro's like, I'm not taking my picture with this guy. I think he's supporting Trump. Quick story on Schwarzenegger. Yeah. We love, like, stories related to ESPN personalities around here. Yeah. Mark Schlereth has told me a story about how Schwarzenegger, like, refuses to take pictures with people that could be perceived as bigger than him. Because <laughs> Schwarzenegger is this former bodybuilder, as everyone knows. Right. But Schlereth's a former offensive lineman. So, like, multiple times he's been in situations where someone's been asking for a picture and Schwarzenegger, like, ducks him. With Schlereth or just with other big guys? With Schlereth personally. Because he's a stink is a right. huge guy. If you see him in person, that's hilarious. Because a lot of these guys, like, he is jacked, as you said, but I don't know how tall he is. Like Van Damme's That's probably like thing. five seven. Right. He's, he's enormous. Action but, stars. Right. We think of them as larger than life, and I mean Schwarzenegger actually was a bodybuilder. So of course, he has some right. You know, reputation but advanced there. age now. He's like, hey, I'm sixty years old. I still want people to remember me as Conan. And this guy slurs. <laughs> That's pretty funny. I'm giving Hacksaw Ridge three Maple Leafs. So go check it out if you're so inclined. I uh, just wanted the thought here on the whole topic of. Um, you know, his, his past. This is interesting. Joe Esterhaus, who is the screenwriter who wrote Basic Instinct, he was famously the first guy to get like $4 million for a script. He wrote a fascinating autobiography, which I have read. And it's really, if you love like good, juicy, tawdry tales about screenwriting, and he tells off Mike Obitz, who's a very central part of the CAA book. And then in the CAA book, they talk about when Esterhaus took down Obitz very publicly in Variety and, and told about how it's intimidation tactics and such. So check out Esterhaus's book. He also, his career started to go downhill. He wrote Showgirls. He wrote Jade. And those movies obviously were huge bombs. And that's where Esterhaus's name was tagged. He's now actually become a born-again Christian. Uh, he quit smoking. He lost like 60 pounds. He runs every day. So his, his life story is fascinating. You should read his book. But on the topic of Mel Gibson, Esterhaus, who once he became a devout Christian, he and Mel, if I'm not mistaken, belong to the same uh, 
the branch of Christianity. So they were going to work on some books about like, you know, ancient gospels and such. And now Esther Haas has written, it's an ebook only. I love the title alone. Heaven and Mel. <laughs> and in the book, he details what a disaster Gibson is and, and clearly hammers on the fact that in his mind, Mel Gibson is an anti-Semite. And he says that in, when they were working on the screenplay, Mel was like, nope, you gotta put the Jews like this. You, hey, Joe, you and I are both Christians. We know the way the Jews are, blah, blah, blah. I have not read the book for the record, but if you really hate Mel Gibson and want to learn more about him, apparently Heaven and Mel is available on ebooks. And if it's anywhere as good as Esther Haas's autobiography, check that out. Next film is Under the Flood. It's about climate change. It's from Leonardo DiCaprio. And I actually saw it on uh, on National Geographic, so it's showing there. So very easy. Don't have to pay any money for it. Just go ahead and find National Geographic. And I'm sure they're running it quite a ton right now, this election cycle. I'm sure it's in some theaters as well. But a real, wait for it, passion project for Leonardo DiCaprio. There's one thing you know about Leo. He cares about climate change. It really is a, an issue that he feels so powerful about. Very early on, he explains his origins and how he became so interested in the environment. Leo's from Los Angeles, showbiz family, but he said he used to love going to the Natural History Museum. He goes, I just loved looking at all the animals and foliage. And the, He goes, it was just always an early idea that always piqued my interest, just about nature and such. And he goes, and then, you know, I started to learn more about climate change and why it's so important. And then really well-respected people of the United Nations and global figureheads said, listen, if we have a guy like Leonardo DiCaprio championing this, this would be great. And then it cuts to all the people from Fox News just hammering him. Like Bill O'Reilly's like, oh, so a guy who pretends for a living is now pretending about climate change for everybody. And Sean Hannity and like all these guys are just hammering DiCaprio. I think it's funny that he does put it in the film. Like, hey, not everybody believes what I am saying. But here's my point, Stancic. And I think about this before watching the film. Like, I get that climate change is happening. I get that. That's by the major question here. Because if you don't believe in climate change, then I guess there's really no reason to watch the documentary, even though they explain clearly. Like, Leo goes to different ends of the world. He goes to Canada where they shot The Revenant uh, in Alberta, and he goes, all right, here I, it was at the time when they were shooting the movie. So he goes, here I am working on the movie. And this guy really explains very carefully, here's what it means the polar ice caps are melting. Here's what it means about rising sea levels. Here's what the floods in Florida mean. Here's what California – it means that all these lands are going to be submerged, buried underwater, people are going to die, et cetera. So you, you start to get a sense, okay, I get the fact that it's warmer now than it's ever been, but why does that really matter? I'm like, oh, because it's going to end up being rampant death, and it causes – Obviously, greater weather cycles, you know. That's one of the biggest misconceptions. They say that people go global warming. Well, it's not that warm where I am. They go, no, it's called, that's what's called climate change. It just means there's a fluctuation beyond what it once was. And it, it really comes down to they hammer the point of fossil fuels and carbon emissions, and I have to try to reduce that. But here's my thought. I'm like, okay, I know it's happening, and I am concerned about it. I have kids, et cetera. I worry about future generations. But what can I do? Like, I don't, I don't you know, am I going to stop driving my car? Is there, you know? And they, they, they made a really great point about this. Like, for the average American out there watching, it's like, okay, well, what can I do? The first thing the guy says, the scientist says, he goes, stop eating so much beef. And Leo's like, what do you mean? And they actually show the map of America. And he goes, this is where all the land goes towards uh, cultivating cattle. And this is the type of machinery that is used. And it emits this type of fossil fuel or whatever carbon monoxide or gas that the cows themselves emit. I, if you watch the documentary, they explain it better than I'm doing here. But essentially, he goes, just stop eating so much beef. Because if there's less beef being manufactured, there's less room being given to cattle, you can feel like you're making an impact. So yesterday, I was going to have a beef kebab, had a chicken kebab instead. <laughs> These are the small things you can do. Use less kerosene in your house. Use less aerosol cans. I'm like, all right, whatever I can do, I'm here to help. 
Um, but it is obviously a very serious concern. There's this interesting moments where Leo goes and he talks to Joe Biden. When he sees Joe Biden, one of the more awkward man hugs in recent memories. Like, Leo, he's like, Joe, big kind of awkward hug. Even when he sees Obama, like he does the White House to see him, he's like, hey, man, what's going on? Like, <laughs> it reminds, the way Obama, when he sees DiCaprio, is like, hey, man, what's up? I'm like, that reminds me of the way that Stanzik has described when the president called here to go on the herd with Colin Coward. Can you relate for us what Obama said to you? Uh, sure. So, you know, we have like four suits in the studio. Like everyone's all excited. Obama's coming on. We got the president. This is great. So we are, you know, probably five minutes before he's supposed to go on, four or five minutes. And so they had called like 15 minutes earlier, and it was an aide just making sure, like, we're ready to go. Yeah, we're ready. 15 minutes, great. President, cool. So the phone rings again, and I, I'm i the one that answers the phone, and I expect it to be the aide again. Like, oh, are you guys ready for President Obama? And then all these, like, someone will hand him the phone. We'll transfer this. We'll do this. We'll get him the Oval Office. So I do the old ESPN radio. This is Dan. And uh, the next voice I hear is, what's up, man? I'm like, oh, Mr. President, uh, with What's going on? He was like, let's do this. <laughs> like, okay. Uh, hang on one second. I'll get you right to Colin. I love that the president, like when he's just saying hello, like that's the way that he would be welcoming people. Like as if it's like a scrimmage. They're playing basketball. It's like, how we doing? Let's do this. <laughs> that was, it was how we doing. That was, that was, yeah, he goes, how we doing? And, uh, this is Dan Stanzik. I'm officially befuddled now. Thank right, you. Right, exactly. Like, let's do this. Uh, and away they go. Anyways, that was just a non secretary of President Obama. But check out Under the Flood if you want to learn more about climate change, why it's so important, uh, and why it matters so much to Leonardo DiCaprio. He, he really explains. I thought he did in detail explaining why. A little heavy-handed at times, fine. Some of the science kind of lost me a little bit at times, but I thought they did a good job of explaining it for a mainstream audience. So I'm also giving Under the Flood three Maple Leafs. So Hacksaw Ridge, three Maple Leafs. Under the Flood, three Maple Leafs, if you're so inclined to watch uh, a really important issue right now in our times. And also at the end of the film, they show in the end credits, you know, here's websites to visit. Here's what you can say to your political leaders to try to make sure that climate change is on there. The other part, last point on this one, Stanzik, at one point Leo even asks one of the scientists, he goes, all right, you've explained all this in detail. This is happening. Why do people deny that this is happening? Like Leo just asked you, he goes, who are the people? Like, like I don't know them. Like, who are the people going, ah, I think everything's fine. I don't believe it. it's all a hoax. And the scientist is like, I don't know. Like, that, I don't know why. Because even Leo goes, why do they say it's a liberal conspiracy? I don't understand. Like, how is that benefiting liberals? And the scientist goes, there's nothing liberal or conservative about this argument. This is happening. And this is what's happening to the earth. And if you care about human life and survival, you should care about this, period. I think it's seen as a liberal thing because it's let's protect the environment. So people think it's this, like, EPA project and we would be wasting government dollars to, quote, unquote, recycle and all these programs that would reduce carbon emissions and those are seen as lefty. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Because it was speaking of befuddled, that's what Leo and the scientists were. They're like, yeah, I don't really, I don't know why they say that, but I hear that all the time. So that's an explanation there. Last film to review before we'll get to Matt, Matt actually of Rotten Tomatoes is De Palma. Legendary director Brian De Palma, you know his films. And I'm going to talk about a few of them in particular. This is an interesting conceit for a film. Uh, basically, a couple of young guys, including Noah Baumbach, whose work you may know, The Squid and the Whale, was a terrific movie he did, wrote and directed. They loved De Palma, so they said, how about we put a camera on you and you just tell stories about every movie you've ever made? And we'll intersplice it with clips from 
your movie. Sound good? And De Palma's like, yeah, sure, why not? So the whole movie, De Palma, it's an hour and 45 minutes. It's just him telling anecdotes from every single one of his films. And at first, I'm like, I don't know if this is going to work. Like some movies, you're more interested in others. And in the movies that you haven't seen, are you really going to be maintaining your interest? And, and that sounds like a, a long filmography. De Palma's been working since the 70s. But surprisingly, it works. I mean, the backstory, the first five minutes just about his upbringing, like, yeah, my dad and I weren't close. Uh, you know, we grew up upper class. He was a surgeon, never saw him much. Went to him, had an affair with his mom. I followed him around, found him there. Okay, so here we go. I have a few brothers I'm close with. Boom, here we get to the movies. Um, obviously, as people who know how much I love Scorsese, so I was waiting to see when De Palma would mention him because Scorsese's always said De Palma was like a big brother to me. You know, when I first went to Hollywood, Brian really looked out for me. And he tells that story. He said, yeah, Marty had worked on Woodstock as an assistant editor. I hooked up with him. And he said, we were all very close. He goes, me, Marty, Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, and they have a shot of a really young Steven Spielberg. It's got to be like 1974. And he goes, Steven was the first guy ever I knew who had a car phone. And they have footage of Spielberg on his car phone going, hey, Brian, look, we're calling you on the car. And there's like a couple of babes in the back. Spielberg's like, hey, look at those girls. Hey, Brian. I'm like, yeah, these guys were a bunch of film nerds. They were partying around there with their car phones and having a good time. Um, but they just had natural interest, right? They were all just big film geeks. They loved those French films that were coming and the Japanese films at Kurosawa and, of course, um, just American films like Hitchcock and such. And that's uh, the smartest thing about De Palma is the way it starts is by De Palma talking about Hitchcock because that's the one thing you know about him. Even if you're a, a film newbie, you go, oh, De Palma, he's the guy that really loves Hitchcock, right? All of his movies always have an homage to Hitchcock. They have shots representative of it. You know, if Hitchcock is the greatest director of all time in many people's estimations and is known as the master of suspense, that's the biggest thing about De Palma. Those that love him argue that he takes the best of, of Hitchcock and makes it his own. And those that don't like him say Brian De Palma is derivative, and he just repeats and recycles genres, and none of his movies have any originality, and he, he's a misogynist by way of all the female characters in his movies are never treated fairly or properly. They're always beaten, mutilated, etc. And And that's the common complaint. And he addresses those complaints. He goes, listen, I have no issues with women. Like, my stories are about thrillers and suspense, and generally it is – Men Killing Women, there's no greater social statement from me. It just happens to be movies that I'm making, and those are the plots there. The, the, the follow-up would be, and this is the thing, the documentary is just De Palma talking. If there was like an actual interviewer, he would say, well, why didn't you ever make a film about a woman, uh, like, a, like a basic instinct type then, like a female adulteress where the killer's in charge and happens to be female. But obviously there's no question and answer. It's just De Palma telling his own stories. But if you really love De Palma, you should check it out. I'm going to tell a couple stories now from the movie. So skip ahead a few minutes just in case you don't see it. I just want to tell Stancic a few stories. Uh, just about the movie, because I don't know if you're going to be watching De Palma anytime soon. I'll skip most of the 70s movies. I don't have a familiarity with much of them. Um, Obsession is one of them, of course, early on. Uh, Carrie, very famously, horror movie early on, kind of made De Palma's career. He mentions Blowout with Travolta, which got a good budget. But I thought the story about Scarface was pretty funny. So he gets together with Al, and they're working on the story a little bit, and they'd hired Oliver Stone as a screenwriter. And Al had wanted to remake Scarface, the original, the Howard Hawks movie, which is with Paul Muni, done back in, in the 1930s, I think 1932. And their idea was, let's migrate, make it in Cuba. And he goes, Oliver was like, yeah, I know some guys. And he said Oliver Stone was fearless. Like, he was hanging out with Cuban drug lords. He goes, like, he, he just didn't care. Like, he was like, no, I have to research this movie. And he was very upfront with these guys. He's like, yeah, I'm a filmmaker. My name is Oliver Stone. I just want to learn about your industry. Can I just hang out while you guys do drug deals, et cetera? And they're like... Yeah, okay. Because it was kind of amazing how Oliver, it was almost like a narc. He was able to just get undercover, except he wasn't working for the police. He was working for a film studio himself and was able to understand that world. And the big thing that De Palma said was like, we, this has to be the anti-Godfather. This can't be, 
you know, Gordy Willis, the director of photography for The Godfather with those dark shadows and everything so somber. This is Miami. Like, Al's going to be wearing white suits. We want loud music. It's going to be bright, shiny, flashy. This is Miami. You know, those colors have to be critical to the movie. And he said, everyone want to talk about the chainsaw scene after it. And they showed afterwards. And De Palma goes, listen, I don't actually show the chainsaw going in the guy's head. Like, it's all cuts. I always show Al's face and the other guy's face. And it's it's all in your mind, again, which is borrowed from Hitchcock. It's all in your mind what you're seeing. Just like in Psycho, you know, it's, it's the Bernard Herrmann score and the knife, you know, just hemming down just like an anvil. It's not actually going in the body. It's not penetrating. It's everything that's in your mind that you fear that is happening. But he said on Scarface, one part, and I've heard this story before, Al... And Kathleen Quinlan has said that she's a good friend of Pacino's. She goes, everyone thinks he's like this big macho gangster guy in life. And she goes, he's not at all. Like, he's so artistic. He loves reading Shakespeare. He loves art. And so he doesn't know this world. Like, he doesn't, he's not a gangster. So one scene where he's like firing off the famous ending of Scarface, which is so great. She goes, he didn't know how to pick up the gun. So he picked it up by the barrel, which was red hot. And he's like, ah, he's like screaming pain. Pacino had third-degree burns and had to go to the hospital for weeks. Like, it shut down filming for two weeks. So for that two weeks, De Palma goes, I had to keep working. I couldn't tell the studio we had to shut down because Al injured himself. So we just did shots of people being killed, but, like, without Pacino. So that final scene where he's up in the balcony, I just would take shots. I'm like, all right, kill this people, kill all these people. And they actually show a shot of Spielberg on set. There's a still of him. He goes, I just called Steven. Like, you want to kill some people today? He's like, sure. So Spielberg got to shoot a few scenes. Like, how's another inventive way we can kill somebody? All right, this guy goes in the pool, kill him this week. Because I didn't have Al, but it was all meant to be from Al's perspective right after he says, you know, say hello to my little friend. And he starts killing everybody. So kind of a funny story there about Scarface. Uh, I had heard it was a bomb. De Palma said it's not. He goes, what happened was the critics hated it. They definitely were all over me, and they didn't like Oliver's movie. Oh, another thing with Oliver Stone, he said as good as the script was, he was a problem. He goes, this is why you normally don't like having the writers on the set, because they start telling you what to do. And he goes, and the problem was Oliver started talking to the actors. So I'd be giving direction, and then Oliver would be telling Al something or telling Michelle Pfeiffer something. And I go, okay, that's it. i got to kick you off the set. So you had to kick Oliver Stone off the set. Um, but he said the movie actually did okay financially. It didn't do great, but it did all right. He goes, critics hated it, but he goes, 10 years later, it became huge with the hip-hop community. And they show the Mariah Carey Heartbreaker video where Jay-Z is in the hot tub, like as Tony Montana with a cigar. And they show Scarface, the rapper. They show Nas, the world is yours. And De Palma said he was approached by the studio to say, listen, we want to re-release Scarface. So it came out in 83. So this was 90 through the 10th anniversary, but we want to have it with hip-hop music. And De Palma's like, what? He goes, I don't know anything about hip-hop, but no, like the movie was very much set in the early 1980s with that tacky kind of disco music, pop music. I can't put like... Nas and Jay-Z in there, but they were like, this would be a gold mine if we could put Scarface to hip-hop music of today. Like, you don't understand, it'll make massive amounts of money. And very often you see this about De Palma. He's like, no. Like, he, when he is set in his minds, like, he is recalcitrant. He is like, there is no way. Draw a line in the sand, I'm not doing it. And you see many times with the studio, he was willing to fight for his project and say no. So Scarface ends up getting made. Untouchables, they tell some good stories about he was a little bit weary about Kevin Costner. He wanted to cast Don Johnson. And he said, I knew him a little bit from uh, Miami Vice. I knew Don would be good. And he goes, the studio kept pushing Kevin Costner. So he said he called Spielberg and he called Lawrence Kasdan. Larry Kasdan knew him as well, writer-director. And he goes, hey, well, how's this Costner guy? He goes, all you like him, he's good. He goes, he'll, he'll fit in well. Because he goes, I got heavyweights here. And he goes, we did the cast. We had Costner. He goes, Connery wanted to do anything but James Bond. He was so sick of James Bond. He goes, I'll take the character of Malone. Irish cop, been on the beat too long, Chicago, I'll take it. Andy Garcia was a good young actor, I'll grab him. Because the problem was Capone, we didn't know how to cast it. And then I said, okay, I'll get De Niro. Now, two of De Niro's first films are Greetings and Hi, Mom, directed by Brian De Palma. 
the whole way that Marty and, and De Niro began was because of De Palma. He kind of discovered De Niro, and then when Marty made Mean Streets, he was like, oh, no, you'll like this guy. And then as the stories we've told on Cinephile, Marty and Bob actually remember that they had, they'd known each other as kids. But it was De Palma to party. He was like, no, I think you guys should work together. And then away they go. Even De Palma tells a story of a taxi driver. He said, I had read Schrader's script. He goes, I befriended Schrader in about 71, 72, and he gave me the script of Taxi Driver. And he goes, it blew my mind. I goes, I had two thoughts. One, this is so uncommercial. Like, this is going to make zero money. And two, it's brilliant. Like, he goes, this is like one of the best scripts I've ever read, but it's not for me. I couldn't make it. He goes, I got a buddy of mine, Marty Scorsese, who would do a great job with this. And he goes, then I got the script to Marty. And Schrader was like, well, who is this guy? I don't know what he's done. Then Mean Streets came out. And Schrader goes, okay, I like this guy. And then I'm making Tax Driver. And for the record, Diploma goes, I kept thinking my first thought was it's not commercial. Tax Driver made money. Like, it was a hit. Schrader's told the story. He said, the day that it opened, I went down to the theater. I'm like, oh, my God. There was a huge line down the street. I said, the projector's broken. What happened? And they go, no, no, that's the screening for the next show. And he ran to the payphone and called Marty. because you never going to believe We got a hit. Like, people are loving this movie, Taxi Driver, which is still amazing to me. But that shows the generosity of De Palma. He was like, listen, this is a great script, but not for me. Give it to my buddy Marty. He can do a good job with this. So on the Untouchables, he said, let me go get De Niro. And he goes, with De Niro, he's very tough to get him into a project. Which sounds funny now because you feel like De Niro says yes to everything. But he goes, at the time, I had to really convince him. And eventually he was like, okay, but it's going to cost you. And De Palma was kind of like, you know what? I, I, I kind of discovered Bobby a bit. He goes, like, I would have thought he'd – not to give me a discount, but just get a cut rate for him to be like, oh, it's going to cost you a lot of money. I'm like, okay. And he goes, it was kind of tricky and untouchable. He had trouble remembering his lines. He goes, I remember going to makeup and I was still running lines of Bobby to try to get him into the character. He goes, but on screen, he was brilliant. He goes, I think part of what may have affected him was just physically it was a tough role. He had to put on weight to play Capone to thin back his hair a little bit. He said, but we knew he had it. We had that baseball scene with a scene where he goes, hey, what do I love? Baseball. He just hammers the guy. When we did that, because I knew Bobby, what a great actor he was. The other thing about Connery, if you remember, his death scene is amazing. And he said he hated doing it. Connery did because he had to put all those packs on him of blood, right? Let me just shoot the squibs and the blood all comes out. And he, goes, he did one take and he hated it. Paul because he hated me for it. And I was like, what? You played James Bond. You've never had squibs on you before? Like the blood spurt? And he goes, no, never, no. Because he was so mad, he did one take, and I and I had to beg him. DePaul goes, think about this. I am begging Sean Connery. Can we just do one more take, just to make sure it's perfect? And I had to do it. He goes, this this is what the life of a director is. It is not glamorous. These guys all have egos. You have to like beg them. Can you just please do this? And of course, Connery won the Oscar for it. But he said the Untouchables hit like nothing else. They knew it was a huge hit when they made it. it ended up being a, an awesome movie. And I still think it holds up. Mamet wrote the script. Um, and, of course, the, the ending is amazing. Everyone always talks about The Untouchables, that Odessa step sequence in slow motion. That's uh, inspired by Sergei Eisenstein, the way the baby carriage is going down the stairs, slow motion, and Costa's trying to get to him and the gun and Garcia's running. It, it's amazing. If you go back and watch The Untouchables, that whole sequence is awesome. The last one I'll just touch on, in case you don't see De Palma, is Carlito's Way, which he knew because when I put it together, I saw Kevin's going, all right, you're back together with Al. Playing a Hispanic gangster, it's going to be Shades of Scarface. But I was searching for something a little bit more mature and something a little bit deeper. And he said, you know, casting Sean Penn, he goes, when Sean showed up as Kleinfeld with the hair, because I knew right away that, that he was into it. He was like, no, I, don't, I, I know how to play a Jewish lawyer who thinks he's a gangster, but he's really just a schmuck. He goes, I got this one down. And he's like, all right. And he goes, at the horn rim glasses. And, and he said, Al was fun to work with. He goes, but I'll never forget. The ending of Carlito's Way is amazing. I think it's a good movie, but the ending is outstanding. Uh, it was actually shot in Grand Central Station, which was not what De Palma had intended. But he had – it was so well choreographed. De Palma said he was on one train and Al was in the other train. And they had to shoot him going through the train as these gangsters are trying to catch him. And even it's like – some of De Palma's best work is when he just throws dialogue and story out the window. Because let me just give you a great chase sequence. Like he's awesome at that stuff. And Al was going through and going through and going through. He goes, it's 100 degrees. He's wearing a big leather jacket. Remember Carlito wears that big leather jacket. Because we're doing take after take. We just can't get it right. 
Eventually, the pilot said they're waiting, and the train just went home, the one that Al was on. And he goes, where's it going? And then the AD goes, uh, Al just left. He said, what do you mean? He goes, he was like, I'm out of here. I'm gone. <laughs> the phone was like, what do you mean? So he said he had to go back to where the where Al's train now was. He's like, well, wh- what station is he at? He goes there. And he goes, I'll never forget. <laughs> There's Al, sweat mopping down his face, the big leather jacket hunched over. And he looks at me and says, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, what are you doing to me? Like, enough. It's four in the morning. How many takes are you going to do? So this is the madness of a director like Brian De Palma, just pushing Pacino to the edge. Uh, one of the stories, so I have to tell, Casualties of War, which I think is a really underrated Brian De Palma war film. came out in 89. Because I really wanted to get it made because it's really important to me because that's how I feel about war. That we go to war with these people and we end up raping and pillaging their land and not caring about the consequences. And that's what Casualties of War is about. If you haven't seen it, it came out in 1989, Sean Penn. And the key was Michael J. Fox. It was huge with family ties. Once he attached to the movie as Private Erickson, who was the conscience of the film, the movie was greenlit and it was made. But it's about, based on a true story, David Ray wrote the screenplay. And it's about uh, soldiers over in Vietnam <clears throat> who kidnap and rape a Vietnamese girl and end up killing her. And Erickson, the character played by Michael J. Fox, ends up reporting the story and faces pushback from the military who just says, listen, you don't know what this war is like. We're, we're fighting hell here. Who cares? I'm not going to court-martial a bunch of guys just for what they did. And, and, and Erickson is just vigilant. He's like, no, no, what these guys did is wrong. Like, I saw it firsthand. And the movie isn't – it doesn't – it's not a classic because it has some flaws. The opening, the ending, I still remember it, is really kind of herky-jerky. But the middle section is amazing where Sergeant Meserve, played by Sean Penn, who's a really you know, cocky, cocksure Brooklyn guy, all oozing machismo. He's kind of overacting in the movie, but I think it works for the character because he himself is kind of a show-off and flamboyant. And him and his guys, uh, John C. Riley's in the movie and John Leguizamo as well. They're part of his squadron. They all have been kidnapping the girl. They each take their turns raping the girl. And the scene where Penn is telling Michael J. Fox, gets your turn. He's like, no, I ain't doing it, Sarge. And he's like, that's a direct order. Like, I'm telling you, you're going to go on that hunt. You're going to rape her. And that's it. And Michael J. Fox is like, no way. I don't care. And at that point, you get this. I mean, listen, you got five guys in the jungle, and the one guy's not doing something. Again, now you've got this division and this this hostility, which is just going to boil over at some point. And De Palma tells the story. He goes, Penn made life miserable for Michael J. Fox because he goes, it was critical to the movie. We we're going to hate each other. And there's one scene where Michael J. Fox is supposed to hit one of the guys with the squadron member, and he did it, but I didn't think it was strong enough, so I called cut. Sean Penn got up out of his chair and just pushed Michael on the floor. He goes, I pushed him as hard as he could. And he goes, the look on Michael J. Fox's face, and he goes, he's a very amiable guy. He goes, I think he wanted to kill Sean Penn in that moment. And he goes, then they both, then Sean sat down, I called action, and he goes, Michael hit it out of the park. Because he goes, I knew that hostility was there. And he goes, credit to Sean. He was like, no, no, I'll get the reaction we wanted of this guy right now. And he said he wouldn't fraternize with him, wouldn't talk with him. And there's one scene at the end where Michael J. Fox is before the uh, court. And Sean Penn goes by and whispers something to him and goes out. DePaula said one of the takes, again, just to get his goat. Sean Penn leans over, and then Michael J. Fox's ear whispered, television actor, and walked away. <laughs> that is great stuff. Check out De Palma. It is available right now on Netflix uh, and on DVD. Like I said, there's, if you love movies, there's so many great stories about movies. I haven't even touched on uh, Mission to Mars, uh, Mission Impossible, which was the most successful movie of De Palma's career, how he got Tom Cruise to agree to that, the ending to that movie, and how De Palma's career has now kind of faded away, unfortunately. But Three and a Half Maple Leafs, check out De Palma. And joining us now, a special guest here on Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. It is Matt Atchity of Rotten Tomatoes. And this is the website. If you are a cinephile, if you're a movie fan, you know this is the place to go. Because for those who are somehow unaware, Rotten Tomatoes is a site which has all these 
reviews, and they just basically an aggregate. It's a capsule of all the reviews, and then they have the tomato meter of movies that are ranked fresh and those movies that are ranked rotten, and over 60% are movies that are recommended, and below that are movies that you should probably skip. First and foremost, Matt, where did that idea come from, the tomato meter? That came from an idea that the founder had, God, almost 20 years ago. Uh, he was looking for reviews for uh, Rush Hour because he was a Jackie Chan fan <laughs> and thought, you know, it'd be great if somebody would put all the reviews in one place. And then, ding! Uh, so he started doing it and launched the site kind of out of his dorm room in 1998. And the idea was, well, we'll mark everything uh, just, either, you know, basically thumbs up or thumbs down because uh, that was what uh, Cisco and Ebert were doing at the time. Uh, and then run a percentage of positive reviews. And the idea was that a supermajority of 60% would be pretty clear that a movie would be fresh. So and it comes from the old idea of, you know, if an audience doesn't like something, they throw rotten tomatoes at the performers. You mentioned Siskel and Ebert there, Matt. And for me, that's one of my favorite TV shows. People always laugh when they go to your favorite TV shows. I say, oh, The Sopranos and The Larry Sanders Show and Oz and, and Siskel and Ebert. They go, really? I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I still have VHS tapes of Siskel and Ebert. And as a movie fan, huh. right, it was always must-see TV to go watch these two guys sparring. And it was always more entertaining. I'm sure you've seen the, uh, the beautiful documentary that Steve James made about Roger Ebert called Life Itself. The scenes where they show those two sparring because they literally had an acrimonious relationship and they were very competitive. So it was always fun when they disagreed and just started insulting each other. And that was the forerunner to, I think, a lot of television today. Here at ESPN, a show like First Take or Pardon the Interruption, it's two pundits, two experts who are going back and forth. And I think what Rotten Tomatoes is brilliant at is that you have now carried that lineage forward. Like now there is no Cisco and Ebert, but if you're a movie fan, you just go, I'll just go to Rotten Tomatoes. And from there, that idea of, of intelligent discourse, but still doing it in a really you know succinct format, has carried through. How, how important do you think that is about having these top critics and kind of carrying that forward? Yeah, you know, it's, it's look, like, if I were to get really philosophical about it, I think that it's important that we kind of are analyzing the culture that we're consuming. And I hope that there's always going to be a place for film criticism. But the other thing is, look, I do this job because I love talking about movies. And, you know, people will ask me, you know, in my spare time, people ask, oh, what movie's good? And I start talking about movies. And they're like, oh, God, are you sick of doing this? And I said, no, that's why I do this job, so I can talk about movies. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Cisco and Ebert's show. You know, you, you look back at that show, and at the time when they first started, you, outside of maybe a political show like Meet the Press, you never saw two guys really go after each other in that way. And it is kind of the precursor to what we see on reality TV these days. And that was a show that was successful because everybody could see movies and you could understand what those guys were talking about, as opposed to some of the political points that maybe you might see in debates like that was a little bit too heady, but movies that's pretty accessible. Everybody understands that. And we like to have that debate on the site. You know, we, we let critics, you know, we position critics against each other. We show who likes a movie, who doesn't, you know, the fans can react to it. Uh, we do a panel at the various like San Diego comic-con and New York comic-con called your opinion sucks critics versus fans, where we get a panel of critics and line up people in the audience to argue with them. Uh, and, it, you know, at the end of the day, it's not really that angry. It's people, it's, it's that fun argument you have with friends about movies like, oh, you like that? Oh, I hated that movie. What's wrong with you? 
Yeah, and I used to always laugh. We're talking about actually of Rotten Tomatoes. When people would say, you know, how come you listen to critics? And I'm like, well, A, I kind of wanted to be a movie critic. And B, I just think if you watch a movie and have an appreciation for it, the whole point of reading the critic is it deepens your appreciation and understanding of the film. Now, going, you know, to this is why Rotten Tomatoes is so great. If I'm not sure about seeing it, for example, The Accountant, right? I saw Affleck's in it, uh, J.K. Simmons we had in the podcast. I'm a huge fan of his. As soon as I see the tomato meter, I go, okay. And then I glimpse through a couple of reviews from the critics that I like. Ty Burr of the Boston Globe, whether it's Manola Dargis, New York Times. Like, there's always a few that I'm like, all right, I was always partial to Entertainment Weekly and Owen Gleiberman and Lisa Schwartzbaum. Okay, let's check what they're saying. And I'll read the capsule. And then, okay, that, that's enough for me to gauge whether or not to see it. Now, let's suppose I saw it. Then I'll go to your site and click on those and read the full review because I don't want the spoilers, right? I just want to know a little bit about what's happening in the basic right. story. But now I can appreciate it more. To go back to Siskel and Ebert, the criticism that they started to face, I believe it was Richard Corliss or Richard Schickel. I believe it was Corliss. He criticized and he said the death of film criticism. He said you used to have Pauline Kael write these wonderful reviews. And then you had Ebert who won a Pulitzer Prize in 1975 for Chicago sometimes because the writing was so smart. And now we've reduced that to a guy putting his thumb up or thumb down. And that's the discourse when it comes to movies. Have you faced any criticism yeah. of people that say, hey, Rotten Tomatoes, you're just putting a capsule from 20 different critics. That's not really film criticism. Yeah, you know, I, I know that Corliss used to say that. And, and, you know, it was a controversial opinion. And there's people who look at they like to think like there was these heady debates going on between Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael. And I don't know that that was ever actually really the case. I think you had a small portion of, of cinephiles who were really, really looking for that discourse. But I think the general public, I think what, what Siskel and Ebert did is that they made the idea of film criticism accessible to the masses of people who weren't otherwise paying attention. And I think that, you know, did they water it down? I would say more that they simplified it because those guys were still writing full reviews. It'd be one thing if those guys were only doing thumbs up and thumbs down, but those guys were still writing their full reviews and you could get them both ways, which is what we do, right? Like you want to just get the number. That's great. If you want to read each individual review, that's fine too. So, you know, it all works. Yeah, I've always found when someone just says, what's a good movie? And if I say, well, Hell or High Water is good. Now, I, again, I just use your son. I'll go, well, I got 98% Rotten Tomatoes. I go, 98%? Oh, my goodness. It must be extraordinary. And sometimes what happens is this, well, right? You, you say, like a movie like Her, which I know critics loved, and I didn't care for, but it had a high tomato uh, you know, meter rating. I think sometimes, and I don't know if you've faced this before, not a backlash, but maybe just an issue is that just because the meter ranking is high doesn't mean everyone's saying it's one of the best films of the year. Like what, what the, correct me if I'm wrong, the tomato meter is just saying this is a positive review. So 90%, those may all be three out of four star reviews. They're not all four stars, but people all of a sudden go, well, everyone's saying it's the best movie of the year. And all you're saying is, no, there's more positive than negative. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. You know, what, what happens is, is that we see, you know, a movie like Iron Man will be up, you know, the first Iron Man is up in the nineties and, you know, the second Godfather film is at like 97, 98, I think. Right. Um, and what that means is, you know, it doesn't mean that Iron Man is almost as good as Godfather 2. What it really means is that 98% of the critics that we polled like this movie. And, you know, it may not be an overwhelming endorsement, but it's a percentage of positive reviews. And, you know, look, do we sometimes oversell a movie? I think sometimes people will look at something in the 90s and say, oh, all right, I'm expecting the best thing since sliced bread. And then they get like, oh, wait a minute. But that's that doesn't happen that much. You know, that did happen with Boyhood. I thought we oversold Boyhood a little bit, but 
that does happen from time to time. But I always tell people, look, like if there's a movie you want to go see, go see that movie. And, you know, I mean, I like every Fast and Furious movie. I'm almost embarrassed to admit. And those don't always do well on the tomato meter. Before we move to, to upcoming releases and stuff that you and I are both really fired up about, I imagine, you mentioned Boyhood's a movie that you probably felt like the site oversold a bit. Is there a movie that you felt like was undersold? Because I know if I was in your position, if I saw a movie that I loved and it wasn't reviewed high enough, I would just be corrupt and just somehow add up the meter without anyone noticing. <laughs> you know, that's always tempting. Uh, you know, recently, I, I find what happens is, you know, sometimes a movie that I think is fine will get a lot of negative reviews. You know, Jack Reacher, for instance. Like, Jack Reacher, like, that scores the recent one. Jack Reacher, no, Never Go Back, uh, the Tom Cruise sequel, and it's in the 30s on the tomato meter. I don't think it's that bad, but that's me looking at, you know, taking the percentage and applying that as a grade, and it's not. It's I can see why critics aren't satisfied with it because it is more of the same, but you know, I, I personally tend to kind of grade movies on a curve and, and you know, is, does Jack Reacher give you exactly what you expect you're going to get? Sure. It's fine. So sometimes, you know, I'm a little bit of a softie, but my reviews don't count towards the tomato meter because, as my wife tells me, that would be a conflict of interest. <laughs> Fair enough point. We're talking with Matt Ashley of Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, as we always know, Matt, they, they cram up all the great movies in the last couple months of the year as far as movies that are going to be Oscar bait. Uh, the number one one I can't wait for, we have a segment here on our, our podcast called Scorsese Stories. So whenever there's a new Marty movie, I go ballistic. So I can't wait for Silence coming out December 23rd. I heard the most recent cut got trimmed down originally three hours and 15 minutes. It's now maybe a little more palatable, two hours and 39 minutes. Like I said, I'm, I'm a Scorsese devotee, as many of us are. So whatever he makes, I'm going to find it fascinating. But what are you hearing about this latest one? A Jesuit priest. 17th century Japan, passion project for Marty, Liam Neeson, Andrew Garfield. What are you hearing? I, you know, I, I look like even Marty's quote unquote failures are still interesting to watch. He's one of those filmmakers, like even, even when he does something that you're not quite ready for, like Kundun is still an interesting movie to see. Um, I, I, I'm, I gotta tell you, like, and then we haven't, nobody's seen this movie yet. So it's one of those things like they haven't started screening it. The screeners haven't gone out yet. So it's a bit of a mystery. It's, you know, it didn't get shown at any of the film festivals yet. So it's, it's one that there's a lot of mystery around, but you know, everybody looks at, Oh, it's Martin Scorsese. They're putting it out on late December. It's clearly positioned to be an Oscar, uh, an Oscar race movie. So the assumption is, yeah, it's probably going to be pretty good. Yeah. Um, but again, like it hasn't been screening yet, so nobody really knows. Interesting. I'm with you, though. As far as all the tent poles, it feels like it's being pushed in that direction, like you said. I'm also, Matt, on GoldDerby.com as one of the Oscars experts, Tom O'Neill, uh, throw me an olive branch there. So I'm always looking at you know who we're predicting as far as other movies. And right now, the latest we have there is Manchester by the Sea, Kenneth Lonergan's film with Casey Affleck, uh, Fences, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Uh, Moonlight, of course, is supposed to getting a lot of buzz. Of those films, which is one that you particularly are hearing a lot about or interested in seeing or perhaps have already seen? You know, I, I've seen a few of these at the at Toronto this year. It was a really, really good year at the Toronto Film Festival. La La Land? Um, Manchester by uh, – La La Land, I tell you, is going to be best picture. I'm calling it now. Wow. At La La Land's going to win. It's absolutely going to win. It's directed by Damien Chazelle, who gave us uh, – um, what was the one about the drummer? Uh, Whiplash. Whiplash, which was so, so good, right? Um, one of my favorite movies in the last few years. And this is a movie that is a musical, 
and it's Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. J.K. Simmons makes a very brief appearance in it. Um, it's terrific, and I think it's going to be, you know, it's a fun, it's a feel-good movie. It's, it actually does have something to say about the price of ambition that kind of sneaks in there, uh, and it celebrates the creative process, and I think, similar to what the artist did, I think that this is a movie that's going to capture the Academy's kind of feelings about themselves, and they're, that one's going to be best picture. Um, you know, I think Casey Affleck has got a good shot at getting a nomination and winning Best Actor. Uh, I think that we for Manchester by the Sea, um, I think that that'll probably get nominated for Best Picture and probably Best Screenplay. Um, I think that we'll see uh, Jackie get a nomination uh, for Best Actress for Natalie Portman. She's terrific in that as Jacqueline Kennedy. Uh, that comes out early December. Um, Moonlight is another one. Moonlight was the last film I saw at Toronto and I would tell everybody go out you want to see a movie that's just absolutely amazing and stunning and beautiful uh Moonlight is this you know kind of quiet small dramatic story but it's amazing and I think we may see a best supporting actor for uh Marshala Ali who people who watch House of Cards will know him as Remy Danton the um the lobbyist uh, he's great in that movie. Yeah, my cousin Salim is actually tight, as he calls him Hirsch. So I was like, that, I, as soon as I heard the buzz, he could get an for supporting actor. He's like, oh, dude, like he's, as you said, he's been really good in House of Cards and other smaller roles along the way. He was in the Gosling movie, Place Beyond the Pines. But you're right. Apparently, I don't like I was going to give it a spoiler. I know you already know it, but I won't say it. But yeah, he's supposed to be awesome in that movie as well. Um, last one for you, Matt, and this is shameless of me. But I'd love to get on the site if I could. I always tweet out my reviews, 140 characters or less. And then, of course, I have the podcast here on ESPN. Is there any way we can – what is the process like to get – I'm not going to be a top critic here, but just get on the site to have my capsule review. Is, that, is there any chance of this? What do I have to do? So, so I can be bribed. I take personal checks <laughs> and cash. Okay. How about a cinephile yeah, T-shirt? Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's funny, actually, uh, stay tuned on that, because we're actually looking, you know, film criticism is evolving, right? And we're, when the site started 20 years ago, you know, almost 20 years ago, we were looking for reviews that look like traditional reviews out of print publications and 300 words or 400 word reviews. And I'm keenly aware that we're seeing more and more critics weigh in on Twitter or YouTube. And so we are evolving how we're adding those to the site. So as far as someone like yourself, you know, the, the, the non-answer I'm going to give you is we may not be quite ready for that yet, but let's keep talking about it because we're working on trying to figure that out for you and a few other people. Oh. So hopefully within the next couple of months, we can make that happen. That is outstanding news, Matt. You could have just complained. Sorry, the connection is a little loose. Good talking to you and hung up on me. Instead, <laughs> <laughs> you gave a genuine answer. You're a good man. Oh, uh-huh. well, you know, genuine. Uh, yeah, my, I will tell you my BS sounds like a genuine answer. So I'm very good at it. <laughs> Matt Atchity of com. It is the premier website in terms of film criticism and all things movies. Credit to you, Matt, also. You know, I remember, like I said, Siskel and Ebert was my thing, and then IMDb was the site. And i got to be completely frank. I can't remember the last time I went to IMDb, unless Rotten Tomatoes was down for some reason. I don't know um, how you guys tabulate those things, but is there a measure by which you can see how much more you're dominating them? Uh, because uh, trust me, I don't know anybody who says, oh, I read something on IMDb. It's always Rotten Tomatoes now. 
Well, we're in a different business, right? Like we're in the business of, of ag- I mean, our main core business is the curation and aggregation of movie reviews. And, uh, you know, IMDb is a great site for reference. They have a really, really deep relational database. And they're kind of the big dog in the space. And I look like I'm a daily IMDb user. Uh, but, you know, I'm a big I'm a big believer in a high tide rises all boats. So the better IMDb does, the better we do, the better it is for the industry and the better it is for everybody. So, you know, look, like would I love to be having more traffic than IMDb? Absolutely. And maybe that'll happen at some point. And we're working on, you know, it's I look at it, you know, if I were to use a sports metaphor, I look at it as we should be punching above our weight. We should be taking on bigger better, stronger sites, because that's what keeps us competitive. I'm less interested in keeping smaller sites behind us and more interested in catching up to sites who have more traffic. And frankly, I mean, and all this numbers out there, IMDb has a lot more traffic than we do. So, uh, you know, that's who I'm trying to catch. Like, I don't want to go after the last place team. I want to go after the first place team. No, I agree. I think you guys are well on your way. Last one, I know I promise I said last one. But like I said, I mentioned a few critics I like. Can you give me three or four critics that you particularly love, just for those who may not know the website, will now check out these reviewers who you can find on the site? You know, you brought up Ty Burr. I'm a big, big fan of his. Um, I like Wesley Morris, who used to write for the Boston Globe, yep. another Pulitzer Prize winner. I I, I find out myself, I, I often don't agree with Wesley, and that's why I like to read his stuff, because I like to see what I may have missed in a movie. Um, there's a critic named Dave White, who's got a podcast called Linoleum Knife, and he writes for Movies.com. Um, Dave White is a terrific writer. He's based here out of L.A., and he's one of my favorite writers in the space. Uh, I like Christy Lemire, who used to write for the AP. I actually, I will throw out that I do a web-based show with her, but Christy, I think, is a fantastic writer as well. And, you know, of course, Manola Dargis is great. Um, a big fan of hers as well. But uh, I would say probably at the end of the day, Wesley Morris might be my go-to guy, partly just because I think his writing is so, so good. Matt Ashley of Rotten Tomatoes, thanks so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I Really a treat. And look, anytime you guys want to talk movies, uh, that's what I do. Actor Showcase. So on the whole topic of integrity and boycotting one's work, I don't watch Tom Cruise movies anymore after I saw the HBO documentary about Scientology called Going Clear. I was so horrified after seeing that documentary, which came out a year ago, about what Scientology has done to these people, the way that they've been completely, cruelly mistreated, that I said, you know what? The hell with Tom Cruise. I ain't watching any more of his new movies. So I remember last year, people were tweeting, what do you think of Mission Impossible 5? I'm like, I have a Tom Cruise band going. Like, I'm not, no. I'm not watching these movies anymore. Jack Reacher 2, no thanks. My wife actually asked me the other day, she goes, would you lift the ban at any point? I said, only like if he works with Scorsese, and I'm like, okay, I have to watch this movie, fine. But listen, he hasn't made a good movie in a long time anyways. Best Tom Cruise movies were in the 80s and 90s. He's now mailing it in for years anyway, so it's fine. I'm not missing a whole lot. Uh, having said that, putting aside my ban of him, uh, Tom Cruise's best work, you know, simply as an actor, he's been great. You know, For a guy who was, came out of the bursting out of the scene, uh, you know, as this boyish, good-looking actor in, in movies like Top Gun and Risky Business and all the rest of it, Dancing in His Underwear, he has actually really shown some talent and done some great movies along the way. Thankfully, Night and Day and Rock of Ages are not making the cut among the crap that he's been making the last decade. This is a hard one, Stanza. God, I, I keep flip-flopping to five and six. I'm going to go – listen to this. People always call me a SUNY critic. I'll go with the non-SUNY critic one. I will put Born on the Fourth of July at six – as great as he is in that movie is Ron Kovic, a guy who loves the war and supports it, that ends up being anti-war. 
um, ends up being a paraplegic, if I'm not mistaken, based on the true story. Oliver Stone directed it. I'll put the one just off the cut because, again, in terms of pure rewatchability, I'd rather watch number five, which is Minority Report. That's a great science fiction film. And Cruise is fantastic in the movie. It's so well directed by Spielberg. It's entertaining. It's crisp. It's fast. Uh, Minority Report, I think, is a great, great action film uh, in science fiction. So that's number five, Born on the Fourth of July, just missing the cut. Number four, this is a Stanzik special and a Tim Kirchner special, A Few Good Men. Again, as far as nailing an idealistic character and the lawyer and the fireworks of Nicholson, he's awesome in that. Number three, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, Stanley Kubrick. Because I like this because Cruz went against his persona a little bit in that even though he's the hero, he's this guy who can't get any sort of uh, sexual pleasure and satisfaction. And the scene where Nicole Kidman tells him about that dream in which she has an affair with him, like the whole movie, he's like just so rendered impotent by it, which is something you're not expecting with Tom Cruise. Normally, he's always the hero. Normally, he's always the gunslinger. Normally, he's the one um, who's rewarded for his efforts. And that's why Shuddy isn't. Like he, wherever he goes, and I, I remember watching it again. Kubrick was so smart the way he directed it that Cruz, even his sentences, he never finishes his sentences. He's always stammering. He's always repeating what the other person said, uh, you know, whether he sees that underage girl, Lily Sobieski, whether or not he goes to the actual party, Fidelio, you know, he ends up being found out, you know, remove your clothes. He never actually gets any release. Like, it's amazing how Cruz just seems so frustrated in that movie. And he really, uh, I thought, nailed that that image of like a an impotent man just trying to find something just to get back at his wife who just had a dream of another guy. Uh, number two is Rain Man. Dustin Hoffman hogged all the credit for it, but Cruz is awesome. And you always need a straight man to play against a character who's playing somebody who's disabled or has special needs. And, and as amazing as Hoffman was, you know, playing this autistic character and so many memorable lines, 50 minutes to Wapner, et cetera, Cruz is the one that you, the audience has to buy into. If Tom Cruise doesn't nail that role, then you're not buying it. He has to come across as crass and arrogant and belligerent. And by the end of the film, he has to have the connection, right? Because Dustin Hoffman, Rain Man doesn't change. Raymond is who he is. There has to be some change in the central character. And Cruz is the one who goes from being, like I said, all those negative characteristics, somebody who really cares about his brother and achieves that moment of healing. Well directed by Barry Levinson. Ron Bass wrote the script. And number one, Magnolia. I love the movie and I love Cruz in it. Again, talk about going against type. He, he plays as just... So misogynist, this character. He's just so vile and angry and so sexist. And yet again, that's where the character starts at. So he's putting himself in a real corner. Like his character comes across as just so aggressive. By the end of the movie, you have to believe he has to have some change once he sees his father, Jason Robards, dying. Uh, that scene where Cruz is just so angry at him. He has so much bitterness and, and frustration with him, but then is able to find that release. Magnolia, which I also love as a film itself. Stanzik is about to say, just because you love Magnolia as a movie doesn't mean it's Cruz's best film. But I will argue against that. Cruz was nominated for an Oscar. It's a great performance and a great movie on top of it. I also, I know about to say, I'm sorry we couldn't include Tropic Thunder. because He's great in that movie. That I wish has, we could it's got to be in there. Tropic Thunder's got to be in there. You also forgot Jerry Maguire, Mission Impossible, The Firm. Eh. Listen, you got you can only have five. Those are good Top movies. Top Gun? No, Top Week. Top Gun, overrated. I can't believe you just said that. Ace, you can ride my tail anytime. <laughs> it's just too much. Uh, risky business. I'm fine with that not yeah. being there. You've got a lot to pick from. This might be one of the better ones we got. I agree. I and mean, there's so many great movies in there, like you said, that you kind of feel like you, kind of, you want to squeeze out seven or eight. I actually but- liked Collateral. Yeah, Collateral's all right. Somebody mentioned, yeah, Collateral's the Michael Mann film. You're right, yeah. Jimmy Fox. It was good. Um, and then Jack Reacher 1 and Jack Reacher 2. <laughs> <laughs> Those are down there with Night and Day and Last Samurai. I didn't make the cut. 
I feel like this will get a lot of blowback. So once again, to recap, the top five Tom Cruise films, in my estimation, Magnolia is number one. Number two is Rain Man. Number three is Eyes Wide Shut. Number four is A Few Good Men. Number five is Minority Report. Just missing the cut is Born on the Fourth of July and Tropic Thunder. And as Stan's mentioned, Jerry Maguire among the movies also omitted. Your five, so you would have included Jerry Maguire, I'm thinking. Oh, yeah. I you completely. So. <laughs> <laughs> Zellweger, never been better. Uh, yeah, I, I would have had that in there for sure. But my list is not egregious in your estimation. Uh, it's not as bad as the Bill Murray one, <laughs> but there's just, I think there's just so many options for this one. So people, you know, everyone's got their own idiosyncrasies. You can tweet me as always at Adnan ESPN, A-D-N-A-N ESPN. Let me know where I went wrong when it came to Tom Cruise. All right. Uh, streaming and then three words and Scorsese and we're done. Well, let's do it. Streaming suggestions. On Netflix, if you love Humphrey Bogart like I do, I don't think it's one of his best films. He did win the Oscar for it. That was called The African Queen back in 1951. It's currently streaming on Netflix. I would prefer, uh, you know, Maltese Falcon or Casablanca. Whenever he's playing Sam Spade or Rick Blaine, you can't go wrong in those directions either or Philip Marlowe. A Pervert Park also available on Netflix. I have no idea what that movie is, but that title grabbed me. So go check out Pepper Park. Let me know how it is. On Hulu, Fargo, one of my favorite movies. Uh, when people ask me, you know, they think my, my movie tastes skew older, give me a great film from the last 20 years, I immediately jump out with Fargo, 1996. If you somehow haven't seen it, it's one of Gene Siskel, the, the great late film critics, one of his favorite movies. Think about that. Siskel probably saw in his lifetime like 20,000 movies, and he said Fargo is in his top 10 all time because it worked as so many different films. It's a comedy. It's a film noir. It's a drama. It's a romance. It's slapstick. He goes like, I've never seen a film that incorporates so many genres. Coen Brothers will never have a better movie than Fargo. You only got about a month left to give out that last 20 years recommendation, by the way. You might have to update that. Oh, you're right. <laughs> okay. Maybe we should do that. Okay. Coming soon to Cinefile. We'll do, of the last 20 years, give you your top 10. It's a pretty good idea. I like that. Uh, Hoosiers also on the list. People talk about good sports movies. Uh, it is a good basketball movie. Hackman in particular is very good. You know who's great is Dennis Hopper. He was nominated for an Oscar. He plays the alcoholic father of one of the kids. He's really good in the movie. It is really cheesy. Like, I was crushing Hacksaw Ridge for being corny. Go watch Hoosiers again. The 80s music, the slow-mo montages. But that's part of what you get with some of those 80s sports movies. The whole scene where they show how high the net is. Really good. Punch Drunk Love. I don't like Adam Sandler. I really don't like any of his movies. But that's my favorite Adam Sandler movie. Probably because it was directed by one of my favorite directors. And Paul Thomas Anderson. And starred one of my favorite actors as well. in Philip Seymour Hoffman. But Sandler's great in that. I mean, it's... Again, people try to pin me in, like, give me a romantic comedy. I'm like, well, I can't give you Sleepless in Seattle. Well, I'll give you Punch Drunk Love. That's a romantic comedy, which is atypical. It's funny. It's brash. And I think Sandler was great in the movie. Again, it's credit to P.T. Anderson, a great director who said, okay, how can I use the famous Adam Sandler hostility and use it in a sweet way in some way that's a little bit different than what you've seen in the past? Amazon Prime, three movies for you. The Conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's 1974 film, Gene Hackman, brilliant, um, as Harry Call a movie that owes a lot to Antonioni and just I've never seen a film that shows you how well paranoia is. He's a, a surveillance man and the movie's about what he hears and how that ends up coming back on him. Lots of great twists and turns. If you love a classic film, 1974, The Conversation would be the one for you. Get Shorty, really funny movie from 1995. Elmore Leonard is a great writer uh, whose movies are often translated to the big screen because his, movie, his books, if you ever read them, are all dialogue. I mean, I've read them before. I've read Rum Punch, which was the basis for Jackie Brown, the Tarantino film, which I liked. But I'm not a huge Elmore Leonard fan as a, as a novelist. Just like I said, there's so much dialogue and there's really not much uh, exposition. But that's why they make such good movies. And Get Shorty, to me, is probably one of the better uh, Elmore Leonard adaptations 
Um, <laughs> just the, the, the whole script is funny. DeVito, uh, John Travolta, James Gandolfini, and Gene Hackman, who's great. He's playing one of these B-movie schlock producers. And he's, there's one script he has that's really good that he feels special about. Travolta asks him why is it so good. And he says, this is going to be my driving Miss Daisy. I just love that line. Like this, this guy who's a clown making these crappy horror movies. But hey, this is going to be my driving Miss Daisy. Uh, Major League is also available on Amazon Prime. This one is for the Cleveland Indians, unfortunately falling short in the World Series, but one of the best sports comedies ever made. Uh, he still gets quoted all the time. And, and watching the Indians World Series run, I couldn't help but thinking about the Indians in Major League. So go back and check that one out as well. Actors in three words. The return stands. I think this is a pretty good list. A couple of these are definitely out of the box. Go ahead. All right. We'll lead it off with, I think we can say friend of the podcast, right? I, I tell you. J.K. Simmons, we're, friend we're st- of the podcast. We're starting to share a brain. First thing I wrote was FOP, friend of the podcast. Get out of here. Look at that right there. Okay. First word is FOP, friend of the podcast. Number two is jacked. Go ahead and Google J.K. Simmons jacked if you don't believe me. Three is authoritative. You'll never see a film like we're... He feels small or he feels like he's being belittled by somebody. He's always doing the belittling. J.K. Simmons is a very authoritative actor and presence. Halle Berry. Ravishing. Unstable, which I think goes for her characters on the air, like in Monster's Ball and maybe a little off the air when you look at her personal relationships. And also hair. I love her hair in Swordfish. That was where that style, that short hair, messy looking. That's I wasn't like- looking at her hair, but yeah, <laughs> it's great. Let's see where she has the book and puts it down. Yeah, her hair and swordfish, that's like one of the best movie hair I've ever seen. I love that hairstyle. Willem Dafoe. I love this one because the first word that popped into my mind was concave. His face is just a disaster. Like his cheekbones are just so high up and he's just like he's like Skeletor would have been another option. Two is Marty because Marty loves him because he did Last Temptation of Christ with me. He played Jesus Christ. So I always think of Marty when I think of Willem Dafoe. And the third word is vampire. His best performance is Shadow of the Vampire. He was nominated for an Oscar for it. Not coincidentally playing somebody who is uh, not among us, not not one of the living. He's living dead. So vampire, when I think of Willem Dafoe. I would have thought his best role was in Platoon. Platoon all the way. Hang on. You're right. Hang on. Scratch that. Okay. Platoon number one, then Shadow of the Vampire. And then I thought you might go Snickers because he's in the recent Snickers oh, yeah. commercial. And he, he is awesome. He is Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, yeah, that is a good comeback for Willem Dafoe. <laughs> okay. Monroe is also an option. Reese Witherspoon. Spunky, Alabama, and Philippi. We were trying to get Ryan Phillippe on the podcast. They divorced, so I, the hell with him. Uh, Alabama, I think a sweet home Alabama, and Spunky for Reese. I don't know how you don't go walk the line. <laughs> that's three words, but fine. Okay, well, we'll just put June. June okay. Carter Cash. All right. That, that's Spunky, better. June, Phillippe. Okay. Phillippe stays in, though. And lastly, Michael Douglas. Dad? Because I think of his dad, Kirk Douglas. I think of voice. I think Michael Douglas has a great voice. We always talk about Morgan Freeman having a great voice. Michael Douglas has a great voice. Like, he could have done... Anything in life with that voice. A third one is sex addict. All of his basic instinct, disclosure, like he's always this guy who's, who's trying to find some sort of happiness. And it's always like he's being chased by this femme fatale. There's a sexual issue. He's like a deviant somehow. Even in life, he may have been a sex addict. I don't know if that's official. I think you might be over. Like, I'm not saying you're wrong. Yeah. I think you might be overthinking some of these actors. Like, you got to have greed in there. <laughs> no, greed like, greed, is, greed good. is good. All right, fine. Dad's voice, greed. We may have to revise it. Stanzik will just do the three words. We'll have our own versions of three words. My list and Stanzik's list, and then you can tweet us which one do you like better. <laughs> Great is good. A Scorsese story. 
I mentioned him earlier. Two shout-outs for William Rankin, who I believe is the, the gentleman who tweeted me. He said, hey, how about this great Marty movie? And he tweeted me uh, the trailer to a film which came out in the late 80s. It was part of a trilogy. It was an idea uh, to put together three quintessential New York filmmakers, Francis Ford Coppola, Woody Allen, and Martin Scorsese. It's interesting that, you know, it's such a uh, rich, fertile ground for uh, filmmakers. You'd think about uh, others that are excluded from that list, like Spike Lee and, uh, you know, Sidney Lumet, obviously, so many great New York movies. But those are the three that they chose. Um, Woody Allen's is called Oedipus Rex, and it's okay. I mean, it's very Woody-esque. Coppola's is dreadful, and it's called Life Without Zoe, and it's awful. And the third film, they said, okay, we'll put together three movies about 40 minutes in length was Martin Scorsese's Life Lessons, and it's an absolute mini-masterpiece. And it's about a painter played by Nick Nolte, who's in pure Nolte mode, just big, shambling bear of a man who's trying to finish up his work, and he gets a visit from his agent. Right, how's it looking? And he, they always go through the same routine. He plays a character, Lionel Doby. Okay, the work's not ready yet. No, it sucks. I'm terrible. I'm, you know, I'm never going to make it. I'm never going to get this done. Just leave me alone. And of course, because it's Nolte. He's just growling at him the whole time. And then he's going to go pick up his assistant, played by Patricia Arquette. And, you know, she says to him, didn't you get the message? I told you I don't want to be with you anymore. He's like, no, but I need to be with you. I, I hunger for you. I need you. And, like, he is the picture of a troubled artist. It's one of the best expressions I've ever seen of this common theme, this common motif in art of the troubled artist. And somebody who can be so great in their art and yet not have a strong personal relationship. And, and Nolte is the exemplar of that in this movie. And for Marty, it really is inspiring to watch it because, again, you feel the elements of him in the movie because, again, at one point Nolte says to the girl, like, hey, I've been married like four times before you. Check that. Scorsese in his real life has been married five times. Um, so he's like, hey, I've been married four times before you. You don't mean anything, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, he, he craves her. He hungers for her. And yet he's restless because he has to finish his work and he's so committed to his art and it's the one thing that he's always true to. And one of the most honest moments in the movie is Patricia Arquette, you know, because she, she says, I don't want to sleep with you. I don't want to be with you. But she knows he's such a talent. He's like, he's like a modern-day Picasso. And she says to him, like, aren't I any good? And it's the one thing Nolte can't do. He's this brilliant painter. He's, he's at the apex of his profession, but he cannot lie when it comes to his art. He can tell Patricia Arquette, I love you. I'll do anything for you. I'll die without you. But when she says, can't you just tell me, is this any good? He cannot lie. He cannot risk his artistic integrity. And again, you see that with Scorsese in real life, that he can, he can do a lot of things, but he can't go against himself. When it comes to his own artistic integrity, that's something with which he is uncompromising. And I think Nolte is an expression of that in Life Lessons because he just kind of shrugs. And she's like, why can't you just tell me if I'm stuck? And he's like, eh, you know, you're young. Like, you know, he can't actually tell if you're good or you're bad. But there's a sequence in particular, uh, good use of uh, the music, Procol Harum's Whiter Shade of Pale, uh, and also the Bob Dylan song, uh, like a Rolling Stone, and there's that one sequence. Life Lessons, I mean, at the very least, it's a 45-minute Martin Scorsese movie. If you want a short Marty movie, Life Lessons is 45 minutes, and it's visually dazzling, the scene where um, the Bob Dylan song plays, How Does It Feel?, and Patricia Arquette sees Nick Nolte in action, and the way that Marty dollies and zooms and tracks, and the paint is flying everywhere, and it's all over the canvas, and you can see really the artist at work, like I said, it's a beautiful expression of a troubled artist and also the artist at work. You watch that scene and it makes you gravitate towards art. It makes you want to go to an art gallery or go do some painting or some pottery or write a poem or do something artistic. You, you can totally see when watching that movie, you know, what turns on a great artist and how they find that, that moment. So check out Life Lessons. It's a part of a trilogy of New York stories. Like I said, the Woody Allen, Oedipus Rex short film is okay. The Life Without Zoe Coppola section is terrible. 
Thankfully, Scorsese's Life Lessons is the first of those three films. You can find it. It's called New York Stories. And the one that movie directed, that Marty directed, is called Life Lessons. All right. Next time we get a powerhouse podcast coming up, I'm not going to jinx it. I'm just going to say we'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.